I feel uh, very profound tonight. I don't know what it is. I feel deep down within me the stirrings of a man about to make great and sweeping pronouncements on the society in which he lives, the time, the era, the beat and the tempo of the 20th century. Can't you tell that? <laughs> Bring it up there, Elijah. Oh, hey, you want to hear a fantastically sick? <laughs> I'll tell you, once in a while you hear something that is so sick, you you know, you want to... What was it that Dorothy Thompson said? Or was it Dorothy Parker? Upon rereading uh, Winnie the Pooh, makes me want to flow up. Uh, well, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, oh, that, it, now, if I said that, people would write and say, what terrible taste... But if you quote somebody, then it's okay. I've discovered that long. And especially if you quote somebody that's official. You quote Shakespeare saying something totally obscene, and you'll get applauded. You say the same thing, and you're liable to wind up in a slam. Listen to this. Uh, would you please uh, give me a little accompaniment? A uh, little, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Give me a little honking music to accompany this uh, salute to the sickness of our time. I mean, well, this is about as close as you can get to the days of Genghis Khan, as I know of. Bring it in. Linda Marshall. Who's Linda Marshall? You ever hear of Linda Marshall? Anyway, Linda Marshall, who has, quote, worn every kind of fur coat that is available on the local market, the local market being London, finally has something different, a coat made entirely of human hair. Ah! <laughs> Yvonne, the Chelsea London designer who created it, says that the hair came from nuns in Yugoslavia. Kind of has a little pizzazz to it. It could be shampooed, waved, lacquered, and combed by any hairdresser. Miss Marshall wore it for the first time to the London opening of hair. Oh, oh. That reminds me, remember, do you ever hear those rumors about the lampshades made out of people? I don't yeah, That's pretty nice. We're not singing real good there. Oh, I'll tell you, it's getting there. Uh, how about doing the show tonight on the nuttiness of it all, huh? I mean, you know, it's just nuttiness. And we, we tend to think of nuttiness as, as, as being an American thing. Yeah. Writers are constantly talking about the sick American society and nuttiness in America. I say no. It's a, I, I, those people who say that have not traveled. They just haven't been anywhere else, you know. And uh, they don't know what it's like in a lot of other places. And uh, we have this... Uh, now, here, for example, it's a great... Uh, did you find it, baby? Great example of, of true nuttiness in action. I've got this... Uh, Spy, see, he's his doctor. Now, you wouldn't think what doctor be. He is. He's a spy, see. And he keeps sending me various uh, clippings, excerpts from various medical journals all over the world. And he sends me to London medical journals, and nuttiness that pop up in that journal. Now, uh, if you want to really get an idea of how completely insane, <laughs> I mean, I'm not making any comment on Marxism or anything else, just how completely insane the the world of China is these days. Listen to this. It's the greatest comment I can ever think of on the peculiar kind of fanaticism and mysticism that is now rampant in China 
or at least from all the reports that have come out. This is from China's Medicine, which is an official uh, magazine. It's uh, you know it's it's the Chinese uh, equivalent. I, I shouldn't say version of it. It's the Chinese equivalent of the uh, AMA Journal. It's very official. Where doctors write official articles for other doctors. Remember, it's scientific. That's the thing that makes it sick. You know, if it was just like, a, say, the uh, Chinese equivalent of the Reader's Digest, that'd be something else. Oh, yeah. But it's the Chinese equivalent of, uh, of uh, the AMA Journal, right? Okay, listen to this now. China Medicine. And he sends me uh, photostatic excerpts. He says, if you want to hear something great, listen to this stuff. Listen to the uh, various articles that are now available <laughs> if you want to read uh, China Medicine. Uh, here, here's one for you. A battle under the guidance of Mao Zedong's thought. Successful removal of a 45-kilogram retroperitoneal neurofibroma. See, Mao Zedong's thought guided the surgeon in removing this uh, retroperitoneal neurofibroma. Now, that is fantastic. Can you imagine an AMA journal? Under the guidance, the inspiration of President Nixon, I conquered this very difficult eye cyst. You see how nutty that is, you see. With the, somehow, listen to this one. How I became a rural doctor in response to Mao's chairman, June 26th, directorate. That's a nice and interesting article. Here's in China's Medicine, Problems of War and Strategy, Mao Zedong. Kind of like that. He writes an article for, you know, the magazine there about the strategy of war. That all fits, you know, with the medical world. Here's the road for training, engineering, and technical personnel indicated by the Shanghai Machine Tool Plant report of an investigation and inspired by the thought of Chairman Mao. <laughs> Everything is inspired by the thought of Chairman Mao. Here's some of the really funny ones. They really get down here. They get really official here. Uh, let's see. On the re-education of intellectuals. Why does that have a sinister sound? An article simply entitled On the Re-Education of China's Intellectuals. Da, 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 da. Here's, uh, here's kind of a nice one. Uh, this one, uh, you might like this one. Uh, As Chairman Mao directs, we follow how schistomiasis in Joysan County was wiped out by People's War, inspired by thoughts of Chairman Mao. First of all, what in the heck is... Shisto, schistosomiasis. Now, I didn't know that Chairman Mao was an expert in that, but he apparently is, and that he drove it out, out of that county, by thinking those great thoughts. And uh, here's, here's another good one. Here's, here's a kind of nice one. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's one. Uh, the total bankruptcy of Soviet modern revisionism. That's a gasser of a medical article. Here's one. Here's a funny one. I like this one. This, this is right out of the Reader's Digest. Here's a great article. I'd love to read this one. How I have striven to be a revolutionary doctor boundlessly loyal to Chairman Mao. By Dr. Zhao Ying. Yes, sir. And so, uh, you know, you just don't imagine politics involved in, a, in, a, in, a, you know, in, in uh, things as uh, eternal as, uh, well, schizophrenesis. Or uh, a fatty liver deposit. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something that has to do with the cysts on the upper nodal system. How I conquered the cysts on the upper nodal system with the help of Chairman Mao's thoughts driving and goading on my oh-so-humble scalpel. Bum, ba -dum, bum. 
That reminds me. Would you give me a little nose-blowing music, please, if you will? Just a little... No- yeah, a little nose-blowing music. Bring it out there. Hey, you got that other one there for me? There, give, give me that other one. I, I feel like playing a little Jewish harp there. You know, whenever I, whenever I, I run into the nuttiness of the world, the re-education of the liberals, the re-education of the intellectuals, listen to this. Oh, man, bring it up big. You want me, want me to try that again? Just a, just a little bit from the top there? Now, I'll show you a variation on that. Uh, you want to hear a variation on this uh, piece there? Uh, before you do that, would you please hit the uh, money button, if you will, there? There you go. Let's get it out of the way there, huh? Big Apple supermarkets are now ShopRite supermarkets. The big change to ShopRite means a bigger change for you. There's a big change at Big Apple. There's a big change all store through. And the big change means more value, and it means more change for you. There's a bigger saving now that we've changed our name, because Big Apple's joining the shop right change. There'll be change at the checkout stand, a friendly face with a helping hand. ShopRite makes those prices fall, because the values go from wall to wall. So let me ask you why pay more shop at shop right? Why pay more shop at shop right store? Shop at shop right store. Shop at shop right store. Shop at shop store. Why pay more? Visit your shop right and save. Dump da dump dump. What are trees for? Trees are for boys to climb, for cats to get caught up in, so little girls can cry about. Trees are to catch kites, for hunters to hide behind, and squirrels to hide in. Trees are for people to look at, to hang a swing in, to pitch a tent under. Trees make an open field a park. They beautify a street. They make a house a home. Trees slow down the wind, settle the dust. Trees are for picnics and for poets to write about. Trees buffer the raindrops, stop erosion, hold the snow. What are trees for? Trees are for everyone. This message brought to you as a public service 
by this station and the Soil Conservation Service, U.S. Department of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. I'm singing pretty good. This is W.O.R., New Yorkie. And uh, I want to salute that chick out there with that... Uh, with that set of overalls made out of human hair, I think that's kind of nice. And uh, also with all those doctors that have been conquering revisionism with their sutures. And the uh, thoughts of Chairman Mao, all those deep thinkers out there. And I want to salute all of you out there who have begun to, once again, I notice, believe in the astronomy, army and astrology. Have you noticed that they even got TV shows now that are based on astrology? Oh, yeah. Hey, what, what is my... What is my uh horoscope for today. Every time I look in the news, you know, my horoscope. <laughs> and it's always something like, uh, be careful, do not make any rash decisions today. I suppose it's all right to make rash decisions other days, you know. <laughs> it says things like, uh, uh, you must be on the alert for your so-called friends today. Hey, hey, I mean, what are you implying, Daily News? I mean, what do you mean, my so-called... Yeah, that was that was mine last Wednesday. Did you know be on the alert for your so-called friends? And all day long, I sat across from the salesman, Ron, and I said, don't give me that, friend. Oh, man. Would you please, if you will, a little more of that bazooming music. Let's hear it there. Come on, I'm ready. Thank you. 
was the damnedest Jews harp you ever heard. <laughs> and you, oh, look at that. I've sprayed all over the desk here. That's terrible. <laughs> oh, man, i got to be careful. This is John Gambling's microphone. Hey, we got a little letter, little letter here from a guy who says, uh, Shepard, uh, you were talking about those plastic trees the other night. You know that you can buy in Sears Roebuck all those plastic beech trees and stuff for instant uh, horticultural decoration of your your yard and their lawn? He said, that's a great idea. He says, uh, now Sears can make a tree, too. I suggest these for the proposed Joyce Kilmer Memorial Park. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, you know, that reminds me of, uh, you know, he mentions Joyce Kilmer and the, the uh, this thing, you know, the... The, uh, the the proposed memorial to Joyce Kilmer. All that. Boy, does that strike a poignant, not poignant, but a real sore point in my life. Uh, I have a note here because uh, two things came together. It's funny how letters will come in, and they'll both they'll both come together and specifically line up on almost like a parabolic reflector on a certain aspect of your time. That uh, and we're all you know we're all part of it. Our time, you know, when you say our time. We're all in it together. But believe me, I don't care how hip you think you are, friend. And everybody thinks he is. I never saw anybody who says, you know one thing about me, I ain't hip. No, <laughs> everybody thinks he is. Just like everybody thinks he's got a sense of humor. Everybody. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a very rare thing, as a matter of fact, actually. However, I I, uh, I noticed that... Uh, that uh, you know, we have a tendency today to make a great issue over three or four or five or even ten or fifteen or twenty years as if this makes a cataclysmic difference between people. Let me tell you, Daddy-O, when the dust settles, and it will settle, like two, three, four hundred years from now, there'll just be one crowd of people, and they'll call them 20th century man. That's it. Doesn't make any difference whether you're 86 today or whether you're because, <laughs> you know, when you think of 18th century men, I'm sure that the guys during the 18th century uh, never realized that uh, if a guy was born in, say, 1780, for example, uh, would be lumped by history with a guy that was born in 1705. Uh, 75 years, a hundred, almost 100 years apart. But they are both 18th century men. And, you know, at any given time in history, everybody thinks that a new era has just dawned. At any given time, it's a fact. A new era has just dawned. And you go back, you find this is one of the oldest recurring themes in all of, in all of uh, written literature. That a new era has just dawned, and uh, the old days were kind of nice and uh, nostalgic, although there were a lot of wrong things about them. But the new era has dawned, and there's new, dynamic, hard-hitting thought. And uh, the new guys, you know, are so far ahead of the old guys in understanding. There's just no, uh, <laughs> just no, there's just no catching up with them. And yet, you got to look at it historically. You can see that historically, that great long procession of ants moving over the uh, bright bronze-yellow horizon of the enormous ant hill that all of us live on. It'll be, uh, you know, it'll be very difficult to tell a guy. Let's say it'll be difficult to tell a guy who was born in 1910 apart from a guy that was born in 1970. 
to those who are living in 2360. <laughs> Believe me, it will be. Uh, and uh, the other day, I was reading. I was reading uh, about this old lady. There's an old lady out in Minnesota or someplace who uh, is very, very old. In fact, she's well over 100 years old, and uh, she is so old that she really does remember. She actually remembers people going to the Civil War. She remembers this. Yeah, well, you know, after all, Civil War, what is it, 1860? Civil War started 61? So if you take 100 years off of that, uh, that uh, the 100-year the anniversary of the war, of the Civil War, was in when? 1961. But remember this. What if she was born the last, what if she was born, say, uh, 105 years ago? She could conceivably, you know, remember people when she was a little tiny kid. You know, you can remember things when you were two years old. If you're really serious to try to do it, you actually can. And, you know, they always say uh, that old people have a tendency, I mean, really old people have a tendency at a certain point in their life. I mean, really old people, I'm talking about people who are 95 uh, 75 on up. Uh, I'm, I'm people who get up into the 85 and the 90 year class. These people have a tendency to remember suddenly, without any warning, uh, apparently a lot of it happens to. They remember things and events that happened to them when they were little, very, very small, with sudden clarity. Have you heard about that? It's a phenomenon that does pop up. And yet they can't remember last Wednesday clearly, but they sure can remember 1843. And they can remember guys walking around singing about James J. Blaine or, or the Millard Fillmore uh, campaign slogans and all that stuff. Well, well, this old gal, she remembers people going to the Civil War. Now, the point of all this is, here is a lady who is clearly a 19th century lady. And yet, she's lived to almost the last third. She has lived almost. She's still alive. She's now in the last third of the 20th century. Now the question is, is she a 20th century lady or a 19th century lady? You know, <laughs> she. Uh, so who knows what you are? You know, actually. And so when when history when history uh, have you ever wondered? Have you ever you know you, you walk around? I remember one time in, in I was in Cincinnati, and uh, uh, there was this girl I was going with at this time. It was this very strange, eerie little thing, and uh, she lived out in the country near Cincinnati. It was part of Cincinnati. It was in our country. And uh, one day, uh, it was a nice, bright, sunny day, and the hills were rolling off to the far horizon. You know, this is a, uh, the, the, the great Ohio Valley, a tremendous river flowing down below us. And uh, we went out, and it was Sunday afternoon. We took a walk, you know, one of those romantic-type walks in the sunshine. The kind you always see in the commercials. You, know, you see these commercials all the time. These, you know, these people sitting in the. I've never once, in all my life, have ever sat in the in the grass with a chick and talked about shampoo. And yet they seem to do it a lot in commercials. You know, she's talking about his dandruff, and uh, he's talking about head and shoulders or some jazzy thing like that. Or have you ever gone out on a, on any kind of an event, any time in your life ever, and discussed the flavor of cigarettes? In fact, all my life I've been around cigarette smokers and I've never once heard one even mention flavor. I've heard them say stuff like, oh man, i got to get a butt quick. I've heard them do that. <laughs> I, I've heard them say, don't tell me you forgot the cigarettes. What am I going to do? Oh, oh, 
Oh, they're closed tomorrow. The stores are closed. It's Sunday. Where am I going to go? Oh, and then, you know, hit in the mouth. Uh, I remember that. I remember my father crawling around on the floor, looking behind the sofa for a butt he overlooked. Uh, <laughs> but I never once have heard a cigarette smoker say, Say, hmm, the second puff is as good as the first. Well, what rich, delicious, satisfying, yet mild Turkish tobaccos. Hmm. And it's a filter, too. Why, it's 14% lower in tars. No, no, I never hear that stuff. And so, no wonder, you know, we feel our lives are kind of loused up. We see people talking like that all the time on TV. We assume that other people are doing it. It's just our family that says, Where's the butts? Look at you. Emptied all the ashtrays. What am I going to do? I forgot to get cigarettes, and now you emptied the ashtrays. You idiot. That's right, you know. My mother starts yelling. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we have a tendency to think of our lives as kind of biological, sociological sports. Other guys are living real lives. Oh, sure. I wonder how many guys are driving around on this new fantastic car, which was guaranteed to make them 15 years younger when they got it. You know those new... Have you noticed uh, car commercials are talking less and less about cars and more and more about youth? I mean, if you didn't know that they were selling cars, you'd think that they were selling... Uh, well, what is it? Youth, you know? At the, and, and there's one commercial on there. Uh, you see this car... And it, it emerges out of the background. It's purple, green, psychedelic lights and all of the car. You just see a little bit of it. And here are all these people going, ba, 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 ba. A whole bunch of dancers, real skinny people wearing white suits. Have you seen that? And they're running all, climbing all over the car. They disappear. And uh, they never mention the kingpin. Never. Of course, that car has uh, solid balls of kingpins anyway, so I guess it does not to mention them. <laughs> you don't mention it. You don't come right out and mention you've got a silly putty differential. Especially since most people think a differential is a clause in an insurance policy. They don't that. Well, they do. Not kidding. You ask. Yeah, have, one of the one of the great uh, one of the great uh, nonsensical commercials on the air today is the one that says, "Look, uh, we know that in your family, uh, you may call him a teenager, but we call him the expert. Oh, he knows. He's the only one in the family that knows anything about cars. Not not that. You better listen to that pimply faced little snot you got living there. That twelve year old kid." You better listen to that guy. He knows everything. You be sure to see him. He's the expert. He knows about everything. Oh, yeah. Listen, I want to tell you, this is one of the great myths of all times, really, because most guys who are walking around who are over 25, they're the experts because they have spent their life. There was a, you know, there was a time when guys over 25 ground their own valves, literally. They get down there and every valve spring they honed and polished individually. You don't think a teenage expert. He gets his expertise from the commercials. You know, that's his idea of a, you know, hey, Dad, the new SST, bingity bong bong, with the eight track stereo, wow, wow, Kazam Power, the one with the dancers on the hood. Well, uh. <laughs> well, of course, these are all part of our mythology, the mythology of our time. You struggle along, trying to make the best of it. And this chick writes me, she says, Chef, how, how would you like to hear what a chick is saying about school? Listen to this sad story. There's Chef. She says, uh, in those four years known as high school, did you ever have to give an oral report? Did I ever have to give an oral report? Oh, man. Some of the worst moments in my high school, any kind of college or schooling uh, experience had to do when you're standing up in front of the class giving an oral report. I remember one time when I was supposed to learn a poem. We always had this business of learning a poem. Did you ever have to learn a poem? And I'd go, on my bird, I could never learn poems. I, oh, 
You know, I wonder how many people carry with them an abiding hatred of poetry because they were assigned a learning of a poem, any poem. And I used to run around and hit my head against the wall and, and uh, get really bugged. I remember, and my mother would say, all right, now look, you're not going out until you learn it. You've got to learn it. <laughs> all right, now sit down and, and, and I'll start at the front. Now, you, I'll sit here in this chair and uh, I won't even look at you. I won't look at you. I'll just look away and I'll watch and see if you're saying it, if you, if you know it. Okay? All right. <laughs> I don't wanna... Now, come on now. You're not going to go out until you say it. <laughs> All right. I tear her tattered ensign down long. May it wave. Long may it wave up. Now think, she'd say. Now think. Where does the flag wave? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I tear her tattered ensign down. Long may it wave on top of the flagpole. Oh. Well, all right. I don't, don't tell me about an oral report, baby. I mean, uh, who who uh, was so so dead has never to himself has said, "My God, don't call on." Me. I mean, <laughs> this is a. She says, did you ever give this oral report? She says, it usually consists of referring to maps of the Holy Roman Empire. That's right. And consulting index cards, right? Oh, yeah. Many's the time I've stood up next to a map with index cards and pointed to the Andes Mountains. She says, well, last week I, a seemingly straight walking around scratching senior in an all-girls school, I presume this is a girl writing, gave what I must call an unbelievable report. She said, I didn't mean to do it, but it turned out that way in biology class. Everyone had been assigned to choose an animal and report on it. I picked the emu, mainly because I had never heard of it. This figures, you know, <laughs> I had a little pizzazz. She says, by the way, she puts her research discovered, by the way, an emu is a large, flightless bird of Australia with coarse, hairy feathers. <laughs> One never sees on TV a special like Clint Eastwood hunts for an emu or an article in Life called uh, The Gentle Grace of the Emu. Uh, why? She says the poor bird is good for absolutely nothing. It cannot fly, it is ugly, its meat is not edible, and its feathers not only aren't decorative, they look like dirty old rags hanging all over it. <laughs> That's a bad bird. <laughs> She says, I decided, you know, you run across the emu all the time in the New York Times crossword puzzle. It's a three-letter word bird, you know. You have your choice of either urn, E-R-N, or emu. But, uh, usually, uh, <laughs> it usually works out to be emu. She says, I decided for my report to be an emu. I devised a simple costume of a tail and tiny wing feathers made of shredded cardboard attached to my back and elbows with string. I also attached a cardboard beak to my nose and tucked all my hair down under a snug green beret to make my head look smaller. An emu, an emu has a little head, you know. Stick, you, you, you've seen the pictures of the ostrich. Well, the emu's worse, friends. I mean, if you think a, an ostrich is a rotten bird, you ought to see the emu. It's got a little head like a peanut on top of that long neck. Well, anyway, she says, I assumed the position which, if seen in public, might be considered somewhat uh, indecent. She says, nevertheless... Uh, she was, I was bent over, my neck sticking far out. For days I practiced hopping around like an emu, flapping my elbows and screeching what the emu says. She says, I, I, I learned according to a book I consulted, Wah! 
Evil has a sound that goes wah. B l l l a a a h h h g g t. Wah. So she practiced this hopping around with her feathers flopping, going wah wah. The day came to give the report. I told the teacher it would take five minutes to prepare. I left the room with a friend who helped me get into the costume. Little did I know, my teacher, who was a sensitive and all-around strange lady, picked that time to tell the story. <laughs> Holy smokes. Who told the story of some 17-year-old girl who knew she was going to die and lived her last days to the fullest extent of their true beauty. As she reached the height of emotional intensity, my friend rushed in and yelled, She's ready! Before the teacher could say, Wait a minute, I let out a... Bah! I came flapping in with my feathers and my beak hanging out. I pranced up and down the aisle, screeching in people's faces. Blah, 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 blah. Those who knew about the report, along with a few other students, were rolling on the floor. The rest of the class was stone-faced. When I reached the front of the room, I read the report about the emu, beak and all. I could feel these icy stares bouncing off me. At the end of the report, I screeched out. I stood up again, stuck my head up, and went... Blah, blah and was followed by another friend who told me the whole story. Can you imagine listening to that sad, sentimental story and seeing some idiot come screaming in with a cardboard beak hanging off of her nose? Hollering, blat! She says, I slithered back into class. No one sent a word. What a turkey. Boy, did I lay an egg. Believe it or not, the teacher went out and continued her story. Oh, that teacher has to be something else. When I apologized after class for interrupting me, she gave me one of those sincere looks and said, Oh, that's all right. She would have liked it. And this chick says, She would have liked it. Now, how do you answer that one? She would have liked me to come in dressed with a beak on my face, going black in the middle of her story. And this chick says, I just said, Yeah, yeah, well, bye. I ran out. One might also consider the report a social commentary. How many of my fellow students kind of look at me strangely now or avoid me altogether? <laughs> it's a wild scene. Now, that is right out of the theater of the absurd. I mean, seriously, think about Imagine the scene. This teacher, she's giving this, this story about this, this whole sad, sentimental story. When all of a sudden the door slams open and another chick runs in with a cardboard beak on her nose. It's right out of Ionesco. Going, blah, blah, blah. She's flapping her wings. She runs around, reads a report on the emu, and disappears. And the teacher continues her story. What a beautiful one-act play. You know? Well, that reminds me. When I read this, I thought, holy smokes, yeah. That reminds me of the time me and... What was his name? Chuck? Oh, sh you know, have you ever had this, this experience where for one year you have a very close friend and then you don't, somehow, you don't see him again, you know? He just becomes another guy in a crowd. Chuck, what was his last name? Anyway, doesn't matter. This tall, bland, happy-faced guy and I for some reason, which I cannot uh, cannot at this time even remember why, we were in Miss E. McCullough's class. Now, we had this teacher 
Miss E. McCullough, was a very serious English teacher. I mean, she was the kind of English teacher, you know, that uh, was always uh, quoting Lady of the Lake. Very serious. And, and her high point of her life came the time when she wrote an article that was rejected by the Saturday Evening Post. And uh, yeah, that kind of lady. And she was very, very serious lady. So Chuck and I, we were reading at that time, we were reading uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Shakespeare, of course. And she assigned us. She says, now, uh, I want all... She had to the cracky voices. She says, now, I want all of you to pick a scene. And I want all of you to rehearse it and bring your scene in and then actually play your favorite scene. So, naturally, Chuck and I, and we got another guy, who I can't remember at this time, and we decided to do the scene with Bottom. You know, with Bottom and the Tinker and, and uh, <laughs> this whole scene. And so, we naturally, this, this appeals to kids. See, so, we started to work on this thing. And we worked on this thing. We'd go over to Chuck's house and we'd rehearse this thing. Guess who was playing Bottom? All right. And the other guy, what are they? What are they? Is it Tinker? No, uh, what's the name of one? Tinker, 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 Tinker. No, Tinker, no, that's not it. Anyway, the other character who's, uh, yeah, uh, Bottom, Bottom. Gee, it slipped my mind. What is it? The other character, and that's a big scene. Come on, don't know all you shrug your show. You don't know. Huh? Well, you're just as ignorant as I am that. But uh, nevertheless, I'm playing bottoms, and we, we, we decided to make a donkey's head. Well, we got, we got all this paper, and uh, we made it out of paper mache. We took, we took the newspaper, and we softened it up. You know how you make it? We softened this thing up. Yeah, here it comes. Gee, I know that. Well, Puck is just a character, but the, the, there were three artisans, Bottom and uh, the other two guys. Uh, but all right, all right, we don't want to go into that. Now we're getting involved in Midsummer Night's Dream. We're going to have Oberon coming in here in a whole bit. We don't want to get into that. But uh, nevertheless, I'm playing bottom. And so for a, for a week, we worked on his donkey head. See? And uh, we, made, we made a beautiful donkey head. We uh, took paper and we softened it all up and we mixed uh, flour with it. And we were making paper mache, you see. And uh, we, we pressed this thing together and we made this giant donkey head. Well... Uh, we painted it. We painted it uh, brown with the, you know, a mane and the whole business like a donkey. See, so <laughs> I'm wearing this donkey head. The other guys made suits out of out of gunny sacks, burlap sacks. You know, they were supposed to look like peasants or something. And so we had all these things, and we we rehearsed the lines, and we worked. And uh, Chuck's mother, she listened to us. My mother listened to us. And we were we would do great scene. I was walking around. I was practicing making a sound like a donkey. You know, hee You know, I was I was whinnying all over the place and hee hawing and yelling and hollering. And then the day came for our our big scene. Well, uh, a couple of kids did this scene before us. These two girls, and uh, they they were dressed with little fairy wings. They had wings and all the gauzy stuff. And they're there in the in the elfin woods and the glades. And Puck is sitting up the tree and all that jazz. And so Miss McCullough said, and now Gene uh, and Chuck and Jack Martin will do their scene. And we're out in the hall. Now, I don't know why it happened, but we we had been we were really serious. We had worked all week on this, and we were really going to knock them out. So we come walking out, and uh, I came out with my donkey head. Well, a couple of kids started to laugh. That's that's what killed the whole you know killed the whole bit. A couple of kids started to laugh, 
And Chuck looked at me, see, and he's standing up there. He's playing the, the tinker or the plumber or whatever that other character is with the wings on his back, and he's got the gunny sack. And Chuck started to laugh, and he was supposed to open the scene. He was supposed to say, ah, me sooth, I think uh, Bottom shall playeth the uh, the fool in this scene or something like that. Ah, forsooth, me thinketh at Bottom, and uh, who doth go there, thouest? Uh, uh, <laughs> some, his line was supposed to... All Chuck could do was laugh. He started to laugh. He's laughing like mad. And, I, and I'm and i standing there, and I'm, I, I said, Come on, Chuck, for crying out loud, quit laughing. Give me the line. And he's, he's laughing. Well, then I'm, I've got this head on my, my, my beak, see, and it's getting hot. We never we never thought about this. See, the head is getting hotter than hell. I wasn't really getting hot. And and we had never actually worn the head except to try it on, you see. And now I'm out there about five minutes, and Chuck is roaring and laughing, and Miss McCullough says, now, would you please begin the scene? He can't stop. Well, the kids start laughing. Well, I start to do the scene, see. I finally says, I'm going to go ahead. So I go, hee-haw, 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 hee-haw. Ah, I am bottom, and I shall hee-haw, hee And I started to sneeze. Something in this paper mache and the paint. You, have you ever been inside a false face? You know that funny smell? It started to make me sneeze. Well, I sneezed so hard. Well, friends, have you ever had a really juicy sneeze? I mean, the kind, pow, you know, all over the place. You know, the kind where you go quick over, you know, it's all over the wall, everything else. I don't know whether you have sneezed inside of a donkey head, and it's dripping down off your eyebrows and the whole bit, and Chuck is laughing, our scene is falling apart. Miss McCullough says, well, I'm afraid that I'm not going to have, I cannot give you a passing grade on your scene. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in my donkey head, and it's dripping off my eyebrows and my ears, and Chuck is laughing, and Jack Martin is so mad. Jack Martin, yeah, I remember Jack Martin. He never flunked anything in his life, and here he got, he got associated with a couple of real dill docks. <laughs> and all three of us went down the drain together. And I remember standing out in the hall. I'd taken the donkey head off. And we're both looking at each other. Me and Chuck and Jack Martin, he won't even look. He's bucked. And Chuck said, well, I couldn't help it. I says, Chuck, oh, look at this. And I could hear the kids in the room playing over and again. Oh, my soul. Oh, the magic forest. Oh, they're going on. And ever since that time, friends, there's been a lot I think about. I think about uh, cabbages, kings. I think about donkeys. I think about playing Monopoly. I think about making a lot of dough. I think about uh, pouring ketchup on the head of some guy over in Needick some night. I think about a lot of things. I mean, you know, the emu, the nice ladies, the chick that wore the coat made out of human hair. Where is it all going, France?